Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, December 3rd. We're talking about how to handle seeing some red in your portfolio. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis. I'm joined by Fool.com's best boy of big bursting bubbles, Brian Faroli. Brian, how's it going, man? Dylan, it's going okay. As usual, I got my yoga session in before we're taping this morning, so I feel good. Feel a little less good when I open up my brokerage account, though. Yeah, so the blood pressure came down and then went immediately (laughs) right back up. Right, Brian? (laughs) That's how it's working today, unfortunately. I'm sure there are a lot of folks feeling the same way. I'm feeling the same way. I was watching some some after hours uh, news come in related to some earnings. Uh, saw a company that has been a big winner for me for a long time, DocuSign, get hit hard, uh, down 40% today, and not alone. There are a lot of very high growth companies uh, that people have gotten used to putting up some pretty stellar results during uh, the pandemic and, and during this big digital push that we've seen. A lot of them have come back down to earth recently, Brian. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the general dynamics of the tech sector and the way that a lot of these indices haven't been hit nearly as hard and really how people should be thinking about all of this stuff as they check their portfolio on a day like today. Yeah, I know that every time I've checked my portfolio over the last couple of months, I haven't been all that excited with what I've seen. A lot of my personal net worth is in high growth dynamic companies that are in the small or mid cap sector. And really, a lot of my investments have been really hammered in recent uh, months. However, if you look at just the big indices, you don't see nearly that same level of volatility. In fact, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, those are only down about 3 or 5% from their recent highs which are basically like non-events. Yeah, it's funny, you know, for me it's like which account did I check? <laughs> did I did I check the Vanguard accounts where I've got mutual funds? If so, things look fine. Uh did I check my individual brokerage account where I'm owning individual stocks? Uh th- that's where the pain has lived and I'm sure that a lot of people um are are kind of seeing and feeling very similar things. The year-to-date results for both those indices have been strong up over 20%. Um but if you're owning individual stocks, especially some fool favorites, You've been feeling the pinch recently. Yes. How about this for some recent pain? Uh, This is going to be the percent down that these companies are from their recent high or the 2021 highs. Uh, PayPal, down 39%. Palantir, down 50%. Bumble, down 60%. Teladoc, down 72%. Chegg, down 74%. And Zillow, down 72%. Ouch. Yeah. That's that's tough. Those are those are some big numbers to see, and you know we have to remind ourselves th- those are down from highs, and these are a lot of businesses that have seen some very high highs recently. So some of this is a little bit relative, but Brian, I mean, what's what's incredible to look at that basket of stocks uh, is were you to have bought that as a basket and said I'm going to buy this and leave it alone for five ten years, I'd say these are a lot of businesses that have some pretty awesome tailwinds behind them. Yeah, if you look at, if you dig into the recent results of a lot of these companies, most of them are doing exactly what they set out to do. They're growing their revenue, they're increasing their uh, their margins, perhaps not as fast as they were 30 days ago or 60 days ago. That's understandable given the dynamics of COVID and stay-at-home orders versus the world opening up. But that is just a taste of some of the downturns that we've seen in individual stocks. Uh, it's just been, there, there have been dozens of examples of high-growth companies that have gone through this level of pain. 
Yeah. And some of those businesses are in these indices that we said before, S&P 500 or, you know, the NASDAQ 100. Um, those indices, Brian, have not felt the pain in the same way. And a big part of the reason why is because while high growth has sold off, big tech has not really sold off in the same way. Yeah, really mega, mega cap tech has not sold off in, in uh, the same way. So if you look at the, the big FANG stocks, many of them are, are down about the same amount as the index as a whole. So just a few a few percent. I mean, some of the bigger declines in big tech is Amazon uh, down 8% or even Meta, uh, the artist formerly known as Facebook, I guess we should say, uh, down 18%. But if you look at the big, big, big tech stocks, uh, many of them have not declined nearly as much as their smaller mid cap counterparts. Yeah, and I think that there's a really good lesson there in allocation and the way that that affects your returns, the two dynamics between the two of them, Brian, because uh, you know it is easy in the grand scheme of the S&P 500, 500 of the world's largest companies, to forget that it's pretty concentrated. Uh, those five companies work out to about 22% of the portfolio. And so if those businesses are doing okay, the portfolio is generally going to be doing okay as well. Um, to, to put some context to the way that return dynamics work here, Apple and Microsoft alone are 12%. They each have 10 times the allocation of the 21st largest company in the index, which is Walt Disney, a little company called Walt Disney. Uh, and, and put another way, Brian, those six companies comprise as much as of the portfolio as the bottom 350 companies. So where those companies go, the indices are going to go. Yeah, and that's just in the S&P 500. If you look at the NASDAQ 100, the concentration is even higher. So there's that factor that's at play. But more importantly, some of the some of the sectors of the markets that were beaten to a pulp and really left for dead in 2020 have shown signs of strength uh, in 2021. That factor, th those companies bouncing back, and they haven't been hit nearly as hard as some of the growth stocks that we talked about before, that factor is also helping to bolster the turns of the major indices. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember all of this because you know if if you're thinking about your own portfolio and and your own brokerage account, um, it's good to get an idea of you know what you own, but also where your returns are going to come from, your overall portfolio returns. If you have twenty percent of your money in a single stock, and and a much smaller allocation, than a lot of the other things you own you are going to basically ride with the success or failure of that company. And the same is true for these indices. And so it's, it's a nice opportunity to kind of take a step back and apply that same logic to what we see and own ourselves, Brian. That's right. Uh, concentration is the fastest way to build wealth. Unfortunately, the flip side of that is concentration is the fastest way to destroy wealth. <laughs> Thankfully, in the case of uh, these these big tech companies, they are widely owned. They're widely owned by a lot of people. It's kind of the first on-ramp for a lot of people to get started investing. And so if you're a newer investor, hopefully the 401k, the IRA has some mutual funds in there <clears throat> that are basically mirroring the S&P 500, and you're not seeing quite as much red. But if you're if you're owning individual stocks, particularly high growth ones, you are. Let's talk a little bit about why that's happening, Brian. Yeah, if there was a big takeaway, it would just be that valuations are contracting. It's no secret that many of the companies that we ticked off before traded at extremely high valuations earlier this year. And even after some of these clients, you, if you have a hard time calling some of these stocks uh, uh, cheap. So their valuations got way ahead of the business uh, earlier in the year. And for a number of reasons, uh, investors as a whole have not been willing to pay those extreme valuations in the last recent weeks. And that's resulted in the sell-offs that we're seeing. 
Yeah, and and really, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning of the year, that this was one of the interesting things we were going to have to keep an eye on. It was probably going to be one of the major stories of the year with tech was we saw these companies have these incredible growth get pulled forward, right? All this stuff that probably would have taken place over a couple of years, moving into a period of maybe six or nine months. What does that do for growth expectations going forward? What does that do for investors' expectations of these businesses? What are they going to be willing to tolerate in terms of growth deceleration? How much of a valuation premium are they going to be willing to pay for that growth? These are hard, hard questions to answer, Brian. Yeah, and overall, the 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 assumptions that investors baked into their model in 2020 was that this hyper growth is here to stay. When that met the reality of we're still growing, just not nearly as fast as we were in 2020. That expectation reset has been a big reason why we've seen so many valuation resets. So you take all of that and then you add on to it the recent uncertainty we've seen with the Omicron variant. We have macro uncertainty with inflation and monetary policy. And then, you know, we know, Brian, whenever we get to the end of the year, we start to see some wacky stuff. And some of that is people are in the market for a variety of different reasons, a variety of different time horizons. A lot of folks who are handling very large institutional amounts of money are going to do things at the end of the year that are a little different than what you and I might do at the end of the year. Yeah, for sure. Can you imagine being an investor that has a huge position in DocuSign at the end of the year? You have to report that. People, your investors could be saying to you, you own DocuSign? Didn't that company just plunge 40% in a year and down 66% of its high? There is some window dressing that happens towards the end of the year with big funds where they sell their worst performers and they add the best performers to make it seem like their portfolios were better positioned than they were. Yeah. And then there's also a bunch of tax stuff that happens at the end of the year, too. I mean, this is something that we're used to in a standard year, um, you know, with, with people looking to either lock in gains and, and make sure that, you know, as they're heading into when they're going to start reporting their full year results, if they've got really great performance, uh, maybe they want to make sure that they don't lose that in the last couple of weeks of the year. But also, if there are opportunities for them to sell some losers and realize um, uh, some tax loss harvesting, they, they might try to do that. Then on top of that, Brian, there's the uncertainty of what might be happening with the tax code. And so you have a lot of folks who are saying, you know, uh, 2022 might look a little bit different for capital gains than 2021. I think I want to lock myself into the capital gain structure I know exists right now. That also might be playing a role a little bit in why we're seeing some selling. Sure. Those kind of factors always lead to short-term gyrations in the market, and many of them are are unpredictable. Uh, the other thing that uh, I've been I rarely pay attention to, but there's no doubt, as you said before, is just the macro uncertainty related to uh, inflation. I mean, throughout the last decade, or since the Great Recession, really, uh, we've sent a tremendous amount of uh, money being injected into the system. And all during that time, inflation was extremely, extremely tame. It's only really in 2021 that we've seen any inflation effects at all. So that is a brand new dynamic that investors are having to deal with. Yeah, it has been the specter of 2021, I think, you know, in, in a way that we kind of forgot about for a while. You know, I, I don't think we talked about inflation too, too much over the last couple of years on this show or really on a lot of, uh, you know, Motley Fool programs. Uh, and it has become something that we're asked about often. Um, you know, we see news headlines about almost every week. Uh, and, and it's just uh, something that I think we have to pay attention to and maybe that we, in a way that we didn't have to in the past. Uh, you know, I, I think as we're trying to take the broader view here of what's going on, um, it is important to remember those names that you rattled off earlier, Brian, um, all but one of them is down year to date. So you were you were giving everything off of highs. We talked about the indices being up about 20% year to date. Um, almost all of those are down year to date. Many of them down 30, 40, 50, 60% year to date. 
If you take that step back, though, for the companies that have been around for a couple of years, many of them have positive returns over the past three years. Over half of them are market beaters. And if you own them as a basket, you'd probably be doing pretty well, in part because the outperformance from the multi-baggers have covered any of the underperformance due to those losers. That's yeah. One one trick that I always play on myself when I see red in my portfolio is to look at my three year returns, my five year returns, and my ten year returns, and I always get a smile on my face when I see those those longer term returns. Obviously, if you just started investing over the last six months or year, you can't do that. But it is always helpful to zoom out whenever the near term is is going in the wrong direction. If you zoom out and look at the long term returns of the market, which is what we fools always try and focus on, uh, you can't help but be thankful that you're investing in the stock market. Yeah. I I think of the tired line, if you don't love me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. And Brian, I think it's true for relationships. Uh, As a Jets fan, I could say it's certainly true for sports teams. Uh, And I think it's also probably true for stocks in your portfolio. Fair enough, Dylan. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, if if you want that upside, you have to be willing to stomach some of that, right? I mean, it's just, it's it's part of the trade-off, particularly in the high growth space. You're, You're being compensated in a way, you know, for the risk and the uncertainty that you're willing to take on. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit about how this sell-off is not being felt evenly. Um, if, if you're like me, Brian, you know, you have a mix of the big tech stocks, the mutual funds, and these high growth names that have gotten absolutely hammered. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about two different businesses and, and kind of present two different cases here, because, uh, it would be easy to look at something down 50%, 60% and say, uh, how, how can this company come back from this? And I think there is a situation where that decline is totally warranted and a situation where actually this seems like an overreaction and it might be a nice case study for some of our listeners. Sure. You asked me to kind of dig through there and find a company that seems to be performing just fine at a business level. And immediately what came to mind for me was Palantir, uh, ticker symbol PLTR. This company has had a roller coaster of a ride ever since it uh, it uh, came uh, public just a few years uh, ago. And if you look at the performance of the business, I don't know how you guys not come away uh, impressed. So in the most recent quarter, uh, Palantir's revenue grew 36% to $392 million. It added 34 net new customers in the third quarter, and its consumer, uh, commercial customers, excuse me, uh, grew 46% uh, in the in, in the most recent quarter, and commercial revenue grew 103% in the U.S. While the company's bottom line is a little bit wonky because of the high stock-based compensation, it reported 119 million dollars in adjusted free cash flow and it had signed more than 50 deals in the quarter that were worth a million dollars 18 deals of which were worth more than 10 million dollars if you look at this company's results, um, you can't help but say thesis for this company is firmly on track, so much so that management reaffirmed that its long-term growth trajectory between now and 2025 is 30% annually. Yet this company, as a reminder, is down 50% from its uh, recent high in, uh, in February. What can explain that? It's valuation, right? Uh, this company traded at 45 times sales in February. Now it trades at just 27 times sales. By the way, that figure still not cheap. That's, that's right. There's there's still some some growth being priced into it. 
And and I think that's a nice check, Brian. I mean, there are some concerns, as there always have to be, with high-growth businesses. And I think in the case of a Palantir, it's a little bit related to the government segment in particular. We know that the commercial revenue segment is something that will probably drive this business long-term. There have been some concerns about what that government segment looks like. Is it slowing down a little bit? But that segment still exists the commercial revenue segment still looks very strong. Um, there's nothing in that that says, "Wow, you know, 40% of this company's revenue just disappeared overnight," um, you know, or 40% of this company's future just disappeared overnight. Um, I look at something like that and I say, if you're a Palantir shareholder, it's tough. It's really hard to see that that red in your portfolio. However, nothing in here seems to be moving away from the reason that you bought that stock originally. The business appears to be doing just fine. And kind of as we teed up when we dug through the S1 of this company, uh, we said at the out, uh, at the, if you were going to be an investor in Palantir, it's best to kind of look at this company on a year over year basis as opposed to a quarterly basis, just because many of the deals they sign are really big in nature and where they land during the year can really impact one quarter's result uh, versus uh, the other. But uh, as you just said, if you just were given the, the headline numbers uh, for this company, I don't know how you come away and you don't say, this is on track. Yeah. And on the flip side, I mean, th this company has been talked about a lot, but I think it's helpful in illustrating when things start to go to a concerning space. And that's Zillow. Um, so shares down almost 50% over the past six months, 70% from all-time highs. Um, this company has gotten a lot of discussion. We don't need to go super deep into it, Brian. But the, the short of it is this is a business that was so well positioned to succeed over the last couple of years. Digital business, it was exactly where the world's going. It was not particularly disrupted by COVID. In fact, massive tailwind um, uh, because of the spike in interest around real estate investing, uh, low interest rates, investors looking for places to put cash. These are all good things for a real estate business. However, headlines over the last couple of months, Brian, have been much more focused on the iBuying and buying flipping program where Zillow appeared to kind of get out over its skis and went from probably having a segment that people were pretty excited about with this business, maybe thought that this was where it was going and it was the future, to having to basically write down that business, let go of a lot of people, and own the fact that it was a mistake. Yeah, Zillow made a big push into the iBuying business, and I, for one, was really excited about uh, that, that, that shift. I knew that that business had tremendous potential. It was going to be very, very capital intensive, and Zillow, with the most traffic in the U.S., in theory, was very well positioned uh, to ride the iBuying wave higher. And if you listen to management commentary over the last couple of years, I actually thought they did it the right way. They first did it as an experiment. They saw how that was going, then they slowly rolled it out and only after they saw some initial success with it did they really decide to ramp it up. So like like many other investors, I was surprised when the company pulled the rug out and said, JK, this mega growth business that we have, yeah, the, the economics are terrible. We're going to be abandoning that. So in that case, that was a thesis changing move by Zillow management team. Right. And if that was a big part of why you owned that stock and where you saw that business going, you have to take a haircut on that and admit that isn't coming together. A lot of money was spent trying to make it happen. Um, and then also, you know, I think regardless of whether that was core to your thesis, people might look at something like that and say, um, I want to, I want to really trust company leadership. And when I see a step like that, and then having to walk it back, appreciate them being honest and candid about it, but also it shakes your confidence a little bit in them knowing where the market's going and really being able to lead that industry. It, cer it certainly does. And, and, 
By the way, trying things and failing at them is something that I'm more than okay with. I really like the fact that Zillow has that optionality uh, embedded in it and they're willing to try uh, stuff because if one of those experiments works, it can really be a game changer uh, for the business. The frustrating thing about Zillow is that they've had this data the whole time and their data clearly showed them that this was something that was working and then they did an about face. Now, to be fair, pricing dynamics of the real estate market have been crazy over the last 18 months and their algorithms probably couldn't account for that because of the extreme inflation that home prices have, have gone through. And, and oh, by the way, uh, I, one of the companies that I think has the most optionality of any company I've ever owned is Amazon. If you look at Amazon's history, they have plenty of absolute failures. I mean, one that comes to mind immediately is the Fire Phone. Remember that disaster <laughs> where they were big and excited about it? They thought it was going to take over uh, the, the iPhone market. And within a matter of weeks, they wrote that thing off as a, a, a complete failure. So if you're going to try new things, it is natural that you're going to fail sometimes. It's just disappointing that it took Zillow so long to realize that their experiment wasn't working. Yeah. And, and Brian, I love that point because um, there are probably some Zillow shareholders out there that have said, you know what, with this, I'm done. I like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Uh, there are probably a lot of other shareholders that have said, I, I'm, I'm sticking around for this thing. And that's a positive sign to, if, if you are aligned with that approach to running a business and taking chances and it, it's okay if you're not, but understand that those are the types of decisions that these companies are going to make and they may or may not belong in your portfolio because of that. Yeah, and just know ahead of time that if if you do stick with uh, with Zillow, by the way, I still hold my shares. Uh, I, I might be selling uh, before the end of the year. I haven't quite fully decided yet. But you have to understand that the next essentially year of financial results out of this company are going to be really ugly. Uh, revenue is going to be down huge. Uh, margins are going to be up, but the company is also going to be taking lots of one-time uh, write-downs and losses and stuff like that. So it might be a year or more before you see the company's actions today actually result in positive things for the income statement. So, Brian, putting it all together, I think the the mindset of the foolish investor, we, we talk about it so often, but focus on the business and really focus on the thesis. There are a couple other takeaways, though, that I think are um, helpful from this conversation. And uh, it, it might just start with taking the long view and, and really taking a big picture look, both in terms of how you're measuring uh, performance, but also how you're setting your expectations for the companies you own and the industries you invest in. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of studying market history, especially downturns in in market history. And if you're just looking at the big indices, for many of the reasons that we pointed out uh, before, uh, you might not get a complete picture of what is actually happening uh, in, in the markets. I vividly remember uh, many, many years ago, I think it was 2012 or 2011, when the markets were leaving growth stocks uh, behind. The markets were uh, rip-roaring higher, and many of the foolish favorite stocks or growth stocks were just doing nothing languishing and underperforming. And it feels a lot like those times uh, now. But if you hold the right companies for the time period that they need to be to be held on, and you're right with the selection of, of the businesses, over time, uh, the best companies will outperform and the worst companies will underperform. So if you believe that you have the best companies in your portfolio, you just have to be aware that you're going to go through times exactly like we're going through right now on occasion. Right. And you mentioned portfolio, Brian. I think it's important again for people. It's best if you can do this when times are good. It's harder if you're doing it when times are bad, but understand your allocation within your portfolio and what that means for where results are going to come from and how subject you're going to be to the swings of any one individual company. Um, and as you're looking at those companies, the, the classic check, it's shorthand. 
is the thesis busted? Does this news affect the thesis? And that's a really hard thing to ask yourself when you see the drawdowns that many of these companies have have gone through. But this is why I always try and keep my attention focused on the financial performance of the company and not the performance of uh, the stock itself. Another thing that really helps me is to always remind myself the reason that I invested in, in, in the first place. I didn't buy stocks and invest because of what they were going to do in the fourth quarter of 2021. I bought those stocks because I want them to help me fund a comfortable retirement in 2040 and beyond. And I'm confident at that point in history, when I'm looking back right now, I won't even remember uh, this time in history as being a downturn for my portfolio. So it can be really, really helpful to always remind yourself, what is the reason I made this investment and is my time horizon long enough out that I can take the lumps as they come? I'm going to set an iPhone reminder for me to shoot you a text in 2040, Brian, being like, hey, you remember this episode? <laughs> you remember these lumps we took? Uh, I think that's right. I think you you have to set yourself up with the long-term mindset and know this is in some ways the, the cost of admission for those long-term gains that you're able to enjoy and for that life that you're trying to build for yourself. Um, hopefully, you're able to go out and enjoy that life uh, and you're not sitting watching the, the brokerage account move up and down because that's where things can get, I think, really hard to separate yourself from. It sure does. And one final tip would just be to surround yourself with a community of like-minded investors. That's got to be my favorite thing ab about The Motley Fool. The people that are involved in this community, whether you listen to engage with them on the boards or through podcasts or through through videos, people that uh, that are take on the foolish mindset are long-term investors. And you can be darn sure that they're going through the same experiences with you at the exact same time. So going through downturns and investing through downturns is so much easier when you're doing it with a community of like-minded people. 100% true. And I'm, I'm lucky that uh, we get paid to do it, Brian. We get to, we get to hang out and talk about it. Um, for, for folks that listen in, um, we are always all ears for ideas. And there are so many different ways to engage with us. So if you're having trouble finding that community, just look out for us on social at Brian Froley. Uh, we're at MF Industry Focus. Um, and I think that's our time. Until next week, Brian. Uh, we'll, we'll see what news has for us then, but it's always a pleasure. Always love talking with you, Dylan. Have a great weekend, bud. You too, man. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. Like I said, any questions, you can shoot them to industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. There's no part to sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.